Wondering how to navigate local, city, state, or the federal government in order to grow your business, secure funding for your nonprofit, or advance your organization's agenda? Welcome to Lobbying Insider, a podcast that brings listeners to the intersection of business and government to provide a rare perspective on how things actually get done. We will dive into some pressing current issues, provide keen observations from the past, and keep an ever-watchful eye on what's coming next. I'm your host, Zach Fink, Director of External Affairs at Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron. Glad to have you with us. Oh, freedom. overcome deep in my heart I do believe we shall overcome as I walk the streets of the Harlems of the world people are depressed they are frustrated they are downtrodden they see no hope they see no tomorrow is this America the land of the free and the home of the brave where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. My fellow Americans, I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And we are joined by the very esteemed Reverend Al Sharpton. Thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I should tell our audience before we begin that briefly the Reverend and I were neighbors, and not only in an apartment building, but actually lived on the same floor. And I, I just want to extend to you right now to our audience. Rev, what a, a gracious and lovely neighbor you, in fact, were. Uh, well, we and you and I were the early rising workout buddies. We used to see each other around five in the morning in the, uh, in the gym. That's right. That's yeah. right. I was always very impressed by your workout as well. Anyway, it is great to have you with us. We are having a very special episode today where we're going to talk a little bit about the Museum of Civil Rights. Uh, I know this is something that is very important to you. It's very important to us as well. Tell me if you could just a little bit about sort of the impetus for this and what was the idea behind putting this together. Well, what happened was I was traveling now about seven years ago in the South, and I noticed that all of the civil rights museums that were of a certain caliber were in the South. You know, they have a beautiful one in Montgomery and then in uh, Atlanta and uh, in Mississippi. And I said, well, what happened to the civil rights museums in the North? Most of the Southern museums focused on a lot of the Southern movement, and rightfully so. Work of Dr. King and John Lewis and, and the Mississippi Freedom uh, Riders, and et cetera. And those are deserving that and a lot more. I said, but what about the fact that we had in the North, Adam Clayton Powell did a Harlem bus boycott 15 years before the Montgomery boycott. Where's that uh, museum? Where's the Museum of Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and people in the North that fought for civil rights and Shirley Chisholm, and then you get into Myra. And uh, as I thought about it, I said, 
But one of the differences in the North is that most people in the North had to fight civil rights fights. So we need to have a museum that's intersectional, where we talk about what blacks had to fight for and Irish had to fight for and Latinos had to fight for and, and gays had to fight for. Why don't we build a museum of civil rights that shows everybody so all of our kids can learn not only the struggles right in the North, but the struggles in each community. Where do I bring, I have one grandchild, where do I bring my grandson to understand that Irish, you know, had to, when they got here, they fought their way into being part of New York or part of Boston, or the same would happen to Jews. Where, where do I tell my grandson about the young lords uh, who were in East Harlem at the same time as the Panthers? So I came up with the idea of having an intersectional museum. I called around and I said, we need to have an intersectional board. I didn't want, and because you and I know each other, I could be candid. I didn't want this to look like an Al Sharpton project mm-hmm. or even just a, just a black project. Certainly we're in it. I wanted to show this is people coming together to tell a story that has not been housed at that level. So I uh, called the chief judge of the state of New York, Jonathan Lippman. And we met. He loved it. He says, I'll co-chair it if you're doing it intersectional. And we went along and started forming board members. We went and met with the Cardinal, who gave us mm-hmm. one of our board members. And we started raising money. And I think that, uh, you know, as, as Sid Davidoff got involved and others, we put a structure together. But we'd be very meticulous about it because we want it done right. And we want it done where it is intersectional. Because I think, one, a lot of the history of my community has not been put at that level. But I think it must be where people can go and see where Shirley Chisholm did, but see Bella Abzug's hat and see what Paul O'Dwyer was about. A lot of history happened in the North, and it shouldn't be buried. What do all of these experiences have in common? I mean, you mentioned some different ethnic groups. The Irish, for example, had a very tough time when they first right. came to New York. And, you know, there has been a similarity that I could point to right away of— you know, difficulties getting accepted, difficulties getting into unions, for example, for, for African-Americans here in the North. I mean, that didn't happen until very late, long after, you know, the, the civil rights struggle had, had begun in the South. What would you say, draw, you know, kind of binds all these groups together in terms of their similarities? Similarities are that they had to fight against misconceptions about who they were and what they were about. All of them were labeled as something or less than what others were. And they had to fight their way in to show what human beings shouldn't have to do is that is that they were equal, that they were just as able as anyone else. They had to fight their way into who defined the mainstream. And they had to, at the same time, not lose their authenticity. It it was always the battle of you wanted to be in the mainstream of finance, of politics, of government, uh, and media, and entertainment, but you didn't want to lose your roots. And how far do you go where you're not a sellout, but how do, how far do you stay authentic where uh, the mainstream feels you're too ethnic-based, whatever, whatever your ethnicity is? And I think all of them had to battle that. And the more you start talking to each other, people understand each other's journey. So, for example... Uh, when I've worked in the, in the last decade or more with people externally to the black community and start saying, well, I don't know if I could 
say it that way in my community. And they'll say, well, wow, you know, we have the same problem in our community. And you start understanding that what you were shooting at each other, we all kind of in different ways had to navigate and negotiate the same thing. And certainly the struggle of LGBTQ in that community, I mean, that happened really right here in New York. I mean, you talked about exactly. a lot, right? A lot, a lot of civil rights movement, I guess, was initiated in the South. Certainly what I was taught in school was a lot of the South. And I want to get back to that in a minute. But that one was born right here. Right here in Greenwich Village when it started on a, in a police uh, matter. And it was the beginning. It was, you know— Movements, the impetus of movements are usually based on some crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that what happened in that crisis of reacting to the police overreacting and coming in and really acting in a brutal way, it rallied the for the public response to how gays or LGBTQ was being acted. Now, it was interesting. When we talked about that, I have members of National Action Network that was there. This is just for the uninitiated. This was the uprising at the Stonewall in, Stonewall, yeah. in, in the sorry. village. No, no, this was, this was, I believe, in the very late 60s, late when, this, 60s. when this happened. And, and the police would raid all the time. And then one day, people had had enough, and they fought back. Right. And it really was born the movement for, for civil rights. Well, I, I remember when I started talking about it, a lady named Agora Kennedy, who's a minister, who recently passed. She was a lifetime member of National Action Network. She would say, I was there at Stonewall that night. And one of the reasons that I could deal with the intersectional stuff is I have one full sister. I have a half sister, half brother, two half brothers. But my full sister was gay, as long as I know. And she always fought against the rigid, anti-homophobic, anti-gay feelings in the church that I grew up a boy preacher and very young. And my mother, strangely enough, who was this committed fundamentalist, Pentecostal, always said, that's your sister. She can bring her partners to the house, which was the opposite of the church. So I had an open-mindedness about it. I, I remember when I was in Tilden High School in Brooklyn, in my junior year, I became uh, one of the editors of the school newspaper. And I went to the village and interviewed Allen Ginsberg. So who was a poet who was gay. And this was at a time, and this is in the 60s, late 60s when I went to high school. So this is at a time you weren't talking about that. I remember when I started my youth group, when I was 16 years old, I became at 13 years old the head of the youth department of New York's chapter of Operation Breadbasket. Dr. King had started two years before. He was killed a year before I became youth director of the chapter in New York. I was 13. When I became 16, there was some divisions in breadbaskets. So I said, I'm going to form my own youth group. And I started National Youth Movement. I went to a guy named Bayard Rustin, who I had met because of my involvement in Operation Breadbasket. And Bayard said, okay, young man. He talked like a British accent, though he was from Pennsylvania. He says, what are your goals? I told him. And uh, he says, what is your time frame? I told him. He said, have you been incorporated? I said, yes. We were incorporated. We have a 501c3. My attorney was an attorney named David Dinkins. That's who incorporated my... I think, think we've all heard of him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I got ready to leave. You know, I'm all 
enamored by Rustin, who, you know, really organized the march on Washington, the 63 and all that, spent an hour with me, a 16-year-old kid, you know, even though he knew I was a preacher and all that. And when I got almost to the door to his office to leave, he said, young man, how are you going to finance it? And I said, oh, I never thought about it. I'm living at home with my mother. I didn't. <laughs> and he said, Rochelle, bring this young man a check. Give him $500 or start and we'll go from there. He gave me the first $500 to start my national youth movement. And I told this story, the A. Philip Randolph Institute's um, annual convention, maybe 2000, uh, I don't know, 2019. Yeah. In the middle of me telling the story, we go to Q&A. An older elderly lady, halfway back, raised her hand. She says, can I say something? So the moderator said, yeah. She says, I want you to know Reverend Sharpton's telling the truth. Because I'm Rochelle Harwoods. I brought in oh, that wow. check that yeah. day. And this old lady's still <laughs> yeah. around. Yeah. So this is the intersectional. <laughs> the, and where, where I'm going the long way around is most of the ministers and the civil rights leaders at that time, this is 1971 when he gave me the check, said, you can't deal with him. He's gay. And Kennedy, President John Kennedy, told Dr. King to stay away from identifying by. That's why he had to take a back seat at the March on Washington. And I said, you don't understand. And I came out uh, many years later in, 20, two, uh, in, tw- in 2004 when I ran for president uh, in the Democratic primaries. I came out early for same-sex marriage. And some of the black audiences I would go to say, how could you do that? I said, I grew up with my sister who was gay. She was black and gay at the same time. She wasn't black when she was born and gay later or gay when she was born and black later. So there's an intersectional thing. That's what this museum is about. We have to deal with homophobia. We have to deal with uh, all of the anti-woman thing. All of that, that intersect. Black women have to face racism and misogyny. Latino women, same thing and and language. And the more we can learn about each other's struggle, the more we don't feel like there's no sensitivity there. And I feel like you're right, just to touch back on what you said earlier about what we know and associate with civil rights in the South. Does it seem like it moved a lot faster in the North? And does that not get taught as much? Because that was also a struggle. But it wasn't quite the apartness that you had, the racist segregation in the South. But there was still a lot to overcome in the North, including cities like New York. I think that w- one of the things, I think you're correct that it was different. But then again, there's a reason it was different. We must remember a lot of the media was controlled by the North. Mm-hmm. So they, did, they, they would illuminate them guys down South. That's Archie Bunker. That's not us. Right. And one of the reasons early in my public career that I was controversial is I wanted to show, no, that's y'all. So I'll I give you an example. When uh, a young man named Yusef Hawkins was killed in a section of Brooklyn called Bensonhurst, his father called me. By then I had done Howard Beach uh, and a couple of well-known fights. He called me and said, would you come and talk to me, represent my family? And I went out there to the house, met with him, his wife, Diane, and uh, they were saying that, well, maybe Yusef got killed in a love triangle. The guy she was dating may have thought he was some of that. And and he said they killed him because they don't allow blacks in the neighborhood. They ran him down, shot him, saying the N-word and all of that. And they said, how do we get this out? I said, I know how to get it out. He says, how? I said, we're going to have a march out there on Saturday. Yeah. And uh, 
I called for a march. About 500 of us went out there and marched all the way down 22nd Street, inward, throwing watermelons at us. Right. And I never get I wouldn't let his father go because I knew he couldn't take it. I said to his two brothers who were on both sides of me, I said, uh, y'all all right? They said, you're right, Sharpton. Everybody knows his race now. This is great. I said, yeah, if we live to get to the end of this march. That's, <laughs> that's how. That's how. And right, one, right. one week they did stab me. So when you look at Howard that, yeah. Beach and yeah. when you look at Bensonhurst and when you look at the the homophobia that that was uh, that the, the, there were incidents in New York, but a lot of the people at that time, media is much different now. We're talking yeah. pre-social media. We're talking about pre, you know, serious radio and MSNBC and all. A lot of the media didn't want to expose that like they did the South. Because you're talking about them. Your neighbors. You're talking about their cousin, right. their neighbors. Right. Right. So it was bad, but it took a lot for us to get them to deal with it. And they demonized us. They wanted to deal with it. But they did the same thing to Dr. King in the South. If you read the New York Times on Dr. King and the Birmingham News on Dr. King, you'd have thought you'd been talking about two, two different, different people. <laughs> right, right. And, and the neighborhood, I think, in that case, and I remember that. I, I was young, but I, I grew up here. And I, I, do, I do think that the people in that neighborhood revealed themselves right. for who they were. And I, I felt like that really swayed public opinion, right? I mean, I think the cameras caught that and saw that. People would say to me, or say about me, all Sharpton want is publicity. I said, that's exactly what I want. Publicity I want is a to great expose, disinfectant. Right. That's right. right. I want to expose what we're fighting. Nobody calls me to keep a secret. They call me to expose what's going on. Right. And you were involved in some of those very early struggles, which I think did help shine a mirror on who we are as a city, who we want to be as a city. What would you say are, are, are the, some of the struggles today? I mean, obviously things are better, quote unquote, right. than they were then. But there are still issues, right? I mean, there, there's still discrimination out there. I mean, certainly what we're seeing nationally, and it's probably a whole other conversation, is very frightening. But, I mean, e even in this city, I would imagine, there are still struggles and issues and, and pockets and areas that, that are exclusive and that keep people out. You still have housing discrimination. You still have economic discrimination where we have a battle right now. When you ask me what's going on right now, let's, let's put it this way. In the last 18 months, we've seen the Supreme Court reverse women's rights to choose. Taking away rights, way. literally taking away rights. They stopped affirmative action, which was a, a whole program to set up, making sure we're not excluded in higher education. Now they're after DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So many of the gains that came out of the 60s is being erased right in front of our face. So you not only have the pockets of discrimination that we see on the surface, you're having institutional change that will usher this back in. Without affirmative action, without DEI, how many blacks do you think and Latinos are going to be admitted to these schools? What, on goodwill? How many uh, uh, are going to uh, get contracts? I mean, so I think that we're seeing a very dangerous time, which is one of the reasons the museum is important. People need to understand what happened, how we got there. Now, the problem with it is that many of our younger people didn't have to struggle. They were the ones that could go into Ivy League schools and they can get a big contract. They didn't know how they got it. So they're now lost. What do we do? They were stunned when George Floyd happened. And, and you saw people erupt all over the world. But we'd been seeing that a long time. Right. And I think that now they're now being awakened 
but they don't know how to fight, which is why guys that's been out here a long time like me in each community need to say, this is how it was done. You can do it differently in, in your time. I, I say to a lot of young people in my own organization, National Action Network, I said, do you realize that Martin Luther King, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, all these guys changed the country? I'm talking about blacks couldn't go to the public toilet. They changed all of that, and all they had was a rotary phone and a, a rexograph machine. Right. They had no social media. I yeah. mean, forget about it. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have TikTok. Y'all have all of these things to work with and can't organize a movement. And I think those are the kinds of things that people need to learn. And progress can get rolled back. I mean, and to your earlier point, what we are seeing, I mean, even all those struggles, and this I think also gets back to the museum and why it's so important to understand how we got here, how rights were achieved over over many years in, in some cases and working together, but that progress can be taken away. It depends who's in power. It depends on the institutions. You're saying it correct. And I think that just like many of us grew up fighting to change things, People were raised that we were wrong, and you, it is your heritage to back up and to back them down. Look at what has happened in the politics of, of our time. It started as a Tea Party, went into birtherism, ends up with Trump being elected. I mean, whether you agree with Trump or not, it's a straight line. Yeah. They start as a movement, and they stayed there. And that's how movements have to be. You have to stay on guard. It's not enough. I called a meeting that uh, I know— you as a journalist, you know about two years ago. And I call a meeting at our Nash Action Network headquarters. And all of the black officials came. And I said, look around this room. We have black lieutenant governor, black state attorney general, black U.S. attorney in Eastern District, black U.S. attorney in Southern District, black uh, U.S. attorney up in Buffalo. We have two black district attorneys, black mayor, black president of the city council, black uh, uh, speaker of the New York State Assembly, black majority leader of the New York State Senate. We have never had this kind of power. And Shirley Chisholm and Adam Clayton Powell would, would never have dreamed it. But what are we going to do with it? If the conditions don't change, that's where the cynicism come in. And, that's, and because I've been out there so long, I could call a meeting. And that's what we need to deal with in every community. When Israel was attacked October 7th, I reached out to ADL. We started working together. And I disagreed with Netanyahu on what has been done and being done in, in Gaza. But what I said, if we can't, if Heschel and King can work together and, and the young lords and the parents, what are we talking about now? Right. And I think that's why we need a museum where people understand this is not that hard if you have the will to do it. And let me ask you just nuts and bolts on the museum itself. What, okay. what, what's, where, where are we in the process? Do you have space? Are, are you? We are in negotiations for a, a, what is, would be for us a prime space. We think we're almost there. We look, uh, we've hired some staff. We've been able to raise some initial base money and have a board. And uh, we're going to make it happen. Yeah. And in terms of pulling all of this together, I mean, is that a great way, you think, to kind of tell this story just because an exhibit is more interactive, it's it's multidimensional, it's not a documentary that you just see? I mean, obviously, that stuff is important, too, and it helps educate. Right. But this really, I feel like, brings the public into it. It brings the public into it. It gives them an experience that they can touch and feel, stay around it as long as they can, and it tells their story. Yeah. When I tell uh, young people about Bensonhurst that we talked about, 
And a, a kid will say, well, I live on 22nd Street now. That happened on my block. That's a lot different than talking about something in Birmingham that he never visited. Sure. So I think it's that kind of relationship that museums can bring this home, and I think it's important. You know, it's funny. When I started talking to some of the people that have a lot of resources that are donating to this, they said, you know, you're right. I never thought about it. How do we not have a civil rights museum in New York? It makes complete, complete sense. And, and to what you said just about sort of focusing on more of the story, right? I mean, even someone like Malcolm X, who I, I, don't, right? I, I don't know that he, he gets quite the same acknowledgement from people that, that Reverend King does. No. There's more, more people know oh, about Adam Dr. King. Powell. Right. Pa- Powell had Adam Clayton Powell. This is going to be one of the exhibits. Adam Clayton Powell had the Harlem bus boycott in the 40s. The, one of the ministers that was under him at Abyssinian Baptist Church was a guy named Reverend Leon Sullivan. Leon Sullivan ended up going to Philadelphia, pastoring the church, and used some of the same tactics of the Harlem bus boycott to do some bus boycotts and, and other boycotts of private industry in Philly. Martin Luther King heard about it and asked Sullivan to come down and teach them how to do it. That's how King and them they used the model. A they, lot of what okay. happened in the South yeah. was modeled out of the North. It was already being done here. Don't forget, one of the great abolitionists in mid-19th century was Frederick Douglass, who was from who moved, who ran away from slavery and moved up to Rochester, New York. Yeah. All of that is wiped out because a lot of our northern people in power of the media didn't want to tell that story. Right. And point out what was going on here. Right. And the segregation and the discrimination. The two largest slave ports in this country was Charleston, South Carolina and Wall Street. That's where most blacks were brought with middle passage. And I think that, well, what happened to the blacks was dropped off in New York and and became owned up in the north. We don't tell that story. We talk about the blacks down south because it's easier for polished people to say, oh, that's Archie Bunk and them, them, you know, overalls and bibs. They just country and stupid. No, same stuff was going on here. (laughs) And we fought a war and we were on the right Right. side of it. But uh, yeah, and I I know you got to go and I'll I'll let you go. I just want to ask you one other thing regarding the reparations bill up in Albany. They've actually finally passed this bill. They're going to study the issue. But to what you were saying, I mean, a lot of the financing of the slave trade came out of New York, right? Exactly. I mean, the banks were here. The big financial institutions were here. So, you know, while it may not have been taking people physically on boats, it's financing that. They financed it and they traded when they got here. And let's not forget when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he freed the blacks in the southern slaveholding states. He didn't mm-hmm. free them in the northern states. And all of that needs to be explored because the only way we're ever going to get this America's original sin uh, dealt with is to be honest and let everybody see it for what it is, warts and all. And is that the way to do it? I mean, even something similar to what they did in South Africa where they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I feel like there's been no reconciling of our history in this country with race. I think you hit it right on the head. And I think we first, because we still have to deal with truth, and that's what this museum is it has to deal with, including the interfighting between the races, the black Jewish uh, fights, the uh, fights around LGBTQ. We've got to deal with our own contradictions because all of that is part of the story and all of that is the growth that we have to have. And that's what we want to house in this museum. 
Absolutely fascinating conversation, Reb. We really appreciate you being here. And, and one thing we're going to do in the museum is we're going to have a gym where you and I will resume <laughs> our workouts. Uh, five, five, 5 a.m. I will be there. Right? Right. You there with me? All I will right. hold you to We are there. We are there. Thanks again. Thank you. In a little tent. Like the river I've been running mm, Running ever since The Lobbying Insider is a production of Davidoff, Hutcher, and Citron LLP, New York's premier middle market law firm, practicing in over 20 areas, including commercial litigation, economic development, real estate, and, of course, government relations. The Lobbying Insider is produced by Joe Benti, and our sound recording engineer is Devante Addison. Publicity by Jody Fisher PR with Beth Ann Mayer at Lemon Seed Creative Managing Social Media. Our podcast platform manager is Monica Thomas. I'm Zach Fink, host of the podcast, and if you'd like to help us spread the word about our show, please share it with colleagues and friends, and be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice. It can be found on Apple, Audible, Google, iHeart, Podbean, and Spotify platforms. Thanks for joining us. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come.